Well, welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're working our way through the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. We're in Chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity. We're working through Paragraph 1. We're actually going to finish that today and then move on to Paragraph 2. Paragraph 1, as in most chapters of the Confession, is really the meat of the chapter. It gives usually the biggest definition of what's going on. There are a few chapters where that varies, where they actually have to preface it. But uh, in this case, it is certainly the case where chapter, I'm sorry, Paragraph 1 in this chapter are all of the various uh, descriptions of God and who he is. And so as a result, uh, we have been taking our time to go through this as we address each of these different issues and talk them through. Uh, We are actually on the end of the um, paragraph right now, and this is the section that is basically about God being just. And let me just back up here in the slides. All right, so here is the end of the paragraph, the phrase, the part of a sentence that we are reading which is, and by the way, if you haven't read the Confession, certainly I encourage you to do so, but that it is, um, you know, we consider things now to be run-on sentences um, that were not always the case. And uh, that doesn't mean that we're right, by the way, because, of course, English did originate in England and with people before us, so they may have had a better idea. But at any rate, we, that was a long-running sentence right there. Anyway, uh, <laughs> they, you know, a lot of the paragraphs, it's like one whole sentence. Like, you know, it's lines and lines and lines and lines of the same sentence. In this case, there are a couple sentences, but uh, this is just the end of a sentence in the paragraph, and it says, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, no, I'm sorry, yeah, and and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. So this phrase is talking about God being just, and you can see that there's two actual things in that phrase that we did talk about already, and it basically explains, it basically is, is around the fact that they are positively described and they're negatively described. So God's justice, we can view God's justice in a positive way and in a negative way. Because it is positive because he rewards those who seek him. So his justice is good for those that are good. It is bad for those that are bad. Now that's a very broad thing. And uh, don't get caught up in the idea of somebody being good and somebody being bad. And that means that God's going to be good to those that are good and he's going to be bad to those that are bad. Uh, don't misquote me on this, because that's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, who are the righteous and the unrighteous? Well, I just described them as the good and the bad. But uh, The righteous and the unrighteous are those that are actually God's children, those who have been adopted into his family, that have been saved. Those are the righteous, and the unrighteous are all those who have not. has nothing to do with how we judge people. Are you with me on that? So we look at somebody and we say, oh man, that is a good person. That's a good man. That's a good woman. Those are... That's a good, whatever, family, whatever. That, they are so good. I wish that we could be more like them. There's always somebody that you wish you could be more like, and that's a good thing. But where we should be really looking is, for, is to be more like Christ because there is nobody that's going to measure up to his standard. There's nobody that's going to be all the good that you see. In fact, let me ask you a question. How many times do you greet people in church and say, they say, how are you doing? You say, well, you know what? I sinned a couple times this week, and I did this, and I did that. You don't tell that. You actually tell about how things are going good. You tell them positive things, usually unless you're talking about your calf muscle, but anyway, or diverticulitis. If you're not talking about those things, you're talking about positive things usually. You're not telling all the things you've done that are bad. Would you agree? So our impression on people is uh, generally that they are better than they truly are. The reality is, is that when we all examine ourselves, we know that we are indeed bad, that we sin even as the righteous, even though we've been adopted into God's family, we still find ourselves tempted. We still find ourselves succumbing to those temptations and sinning. Obviously, the goal and the desire and the hope is that we do that less and less, right? That we 
learn what tempts us, and we try to avoid the things that tempt us. We learn that we sin when we do this thing, so we try not to do that thing, right? That, that's the way that it should be working for us. And, frankly, um, that changes over time, does it not? Have you not experienced this, that, you know, you used to do this thing, and then you learned, you know, I shouldn't be doing that thing, I shouldn't be doing that thing, I shouldn't be doing that thing, and about the 12,000th time that you did it, you finally convinced yourself not to do that anymore, and so you don't do that, hallelujah, you had victory over that temptation. Now, I said 12,000th. I'm, I'm not setting the standard here. That's not the normative, okay? So I'm not saying you can sin 12,000 times until you stop doing it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just giving an exaggerated number to say that we do frequently commit the same sins. We do frequently commit the same sins. And there are some sins that you have, all of you, every one of you. I'm sorry if you think you are the perfect person. You are not the perfect person. And that is the sin of pride, we all are guilty of the sin of pride. This sin really is the most difficult to deal with. And as soon as you feel like you're a great person, you just exemplified your pride, right? So the reality is, is that when we are actually humbling ourselves to recognize that we are a failed human, that we do sin, that we do need to repent, that we do need to submit ourselves to the righteousness of God, that is truly submitting and not having pride right? It's difficult besides that. It's very difficult. And obviously, uh, I think that our social media-oriented society today has made that much worse. It's made it much worse. Because now the people have an outlet that they never had before. They never had before. So before, you would be prideful when you're talking to someone. And you could be prideful if you wrote a newspaper article, Right? Or something like that. Uh, you, there was not another out for, outlet for it. And when you're talking to people, by the way, it is much harder to get away with positive, prideful things. Because people know you. So if you say, you know, you give this impression that everything is always perfect for you, people know that's not the case. They know that's not true. They can tell when you're hurting. They know when you've had somebody in your life that's messed up and you are actually so saddened by it. They know this is true. And yet, those people that have those experiences today will post a picture of their coffee cup sitting on their table and talk about how wonderful the Lord is, when inside they're hurting. They're hurting. Now, what happens? They'll get 50 likes. They get a whole bunch of people that will talk positive back to them, which is encouraging, right? That is encouraging. Except that the only thing they ever post is about good things or if they do cross over into the line where they start talking about challenges they have and how they're looking at those challenges, what do they get? A bunch of likes. They get a bunch of positives. What does that tell them? What they're doing is right. What they're doing is good. They should keep doing that. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody ever put a post on social media that you've seen that was showing that they were doing the wrong thing? That it was the wrong attitude? That it was a sinful attitude? that it was a sinful occupation that they were doing, occupying themselves with <laughs> all the time. It's full of that stuff. But by seeing all these positive affirmations, they start to believe that whatever they're doing is correct. That indeed, whatever their perspective on things are, are correct all the time. It gives them a false sense of self-worth. In other words, it inflates their ego. It raises their ego. It makes them have more pride. It makes them have more pride and actually less humbling, 
less humbling, right? Now, you understand, they're not all that way, but this is regular. I mean, if you ever go on social media, if you're on social media, you have to admit you see this all the time, all the time. I've seen people that post about, you know, I'm just doing this and I'm doing that, but, you know, the Lord will help me and I'm just, I'm just holding on to the Lord. And what they're really saying is they're really sinning. They're really sinning, but they're holding on to the Lord. That justifies it. And then they get a whole bunch of affirmations. It's like, wait a minute. The fact that they're in a, in, in a relationship that's outside of their marriage with somebody else and that they're praying that their husband will leave them, that's not something we should encourage. And yet, I've seen that on social media. By the way, how long do you think it would be till a spouse would find out about that? Not long. But this happens. Pride. Arrogance. Inflated ego. That is pride, by the way. So when these things happen, we have to step back and realize that what are we doing? Who are we focusing on? Who should we be turning our attention to? It's Christ. It's not ourselves. It is not about you. I'm sorry to say this. I think you all probably know this deep in your heart. It's not about you. It's not. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about God. That's why you're here. That's what the scripture says. Do we have things that we must do for ourselves in the meantime? Absolutely we do. You must eat or drink if you're on a liquid diet. You must ingest sustenance, right? You have to do this. Do you have to work? Yes. In fact, you're commanded. This is actually, it's the curse, but this is the way that, the curse is actually the work will be difficult, but this is the way that God made man in his perfect state. Adam was given a job before he sinned. He had a job. This is the way God made mankind. Mankind is made to work. So should you work? Yes. Well, isn't that about me? Depends on how you look at it, right? Is your work focused on you? Or is your work focused on your, fulfilling your responsibilities to care for your family? And yourself. You're single. You work. You've got to have money to live, right? And even if you're not spending it today, you're, maybe you're saving it so you could get a house. So eventually, that's what you'd have. Are you with me on this? In other words, we have to remember that there are things we need to do in life. There are things we need to do. But that's not the main purpose of our life. The main purpose of our life is not to satisfy ourselves. The main purpose of our life is to satisfy God. That should be the ultimate thing that we're working toward. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't try to give yourself an out on this. Don't say, well, you know, I can't spend time reading my Bible because I've got so many things to do. Is there anybody here that doesn't have anything to do? Like, that when you get up in the morning, you think, man, what a blessing. I have nothing to do in life. Nothing. I can just have a great day playing around and doing whatever I want to. There's nothing to fix. There's nothing to clean. There's nothing to bake. There's nothing to cook. There's nothing to work. There's nothing I have to do whatsoever. Does anybody have that? I've seen people that are close to that, but they still don't get it. They're still not there because they still live. And they still do have to do something with the place they live in, even if it's minimally, and some do it that minimally. But you understand, you still have this requirement. You still have this thing where you have to live life. You still have to do responsibilities. You still have to follow through on things. You still have to continue life, right? And the scriptures are also clear. There are a time, there's a time to laugh. 
The scripture says there's a time to laugh. There's also a time to mourn. There's a time to cry. There's a time for all these things are part of life. Does that mean we should ignore these, anything that we don't have to do and that is not directly dedicated to God? Nope. The scriptures actually talk about that as well. Sometimes you need a respite. And regularly, by the way. That's not like you know, once in three years. You do need this. You can't, if, even if you look at the work of Christ, who obviously was busy. We can agree with this, right? He is a busy guy. Through his entire ministry, very busy. Multiple times through his ministry, he took a break. Now, we don't always know what he did. There's only once or twice where we actually get a hint of what he did. But the rest of the time, he just took a break. Like when he sent out the apostles for the first time, by twos. We see Christ doing nothing during that time period. Nothing. Probably an indicator that he was taking a break. So do we need to take a break? Yes, you still need to take a break. You still need to have some rest. You still need to be lifted from some of the daily menial burdens that we carry. You still need that. So I'm not, don't go down that path and say, oh, he's suggesting that we should never do anything and I can't, you know, we can't exist if we don't take a break. And yeah, I know that. Yes, you have to take breaks. It's just, what's the big picture focus? It should be on God. It should be on God. And he rewards those who are righteous, those who seek him. And he punishes those who don't. An unbeliever will never truly seek God. Now, this is a difficulty. This is a difficulty. What constitutes seeking God? How far can an unbeliever go down the path believing that they are righteous and not be righteous? This is hard. It's not hard because God has made it hard. It's hard because we have difficulty knowing. What do I mean? What did Christ say would happen at the judgment? There would be those who would come before him who would say, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons? Have we not fed the sick? Have we not helped the poor? And what does he say? Depart from me, you cursed, I never knew you. Wow. That's, that should be scary. It is scary. So these people were performing what sounds like miracles. They were doing things in, obviously, God's name. Whether it was Jesus or not, we don't know. But it sounds like it was. And yet, they were not children of God. They were not. That's, that should be very sobering to us. And I think if you follow along in the Gospels, when you see what happened with the apostles after that, there was some doubt. Some of them had doubts about themselves. Not about Christ. They had doubts about themselves. So this is not like unusual for us to have a doubt sometimes. 
The apostles doubted too. <laughs> I mean, after you get through the entire process, I mean, isn't, isn't the, when Christ appeared to them in the upper room, and we don't know much more about it than the fact that it was the upper room, but when he appears to them, and the door's closed, by the way, we know that, he appears to them in the room, oh, suddenly he's there. Now, how did that look? Did he shimmer into, like he was transported, he shimmered into the room, or they blinked and there he was, or did he walk through the wall, or how did that all go? We can't say for sure. But here's what we know. Suddenly he's there, and they're shocked. But there's somebody who's not there, and he joins them, Thomas. And he can't believe that it's Jesus. He can't believe it. Now, how much did he actually say, and how much did Christ just know his thoughts? That he knew that he was indeed doubting. We don't know. We don't know. But here's what we know. Christ sensed that, saw that, knew that doubt, and asked him to feel the nail prints in his hands and to put his hand on his side where there was a hole to help his unbelief. This is an apostle. This is his disciple. He was with him through those teachings, through the miracles. He was with him through all that stuff. He heard the preaching, and yet, now fulfilled, risen from the dead, he still doubted. Now, that's encouraging. It should be to us. Because when we have doubts, it's because of the flesh. Thomas' doubts were because of the flesh. Now, you have an advantage. You have the Holy Spirit. Wasn't on them yet. Didn't happen until Pentecost. Were they temporarily filled? I think it would be hard to argue that they were not temporarily filled. They performed miracles also. Different times. Not all the time, but different times. But the point is, you have the Spirit. So the Spirit can help you when you're dealing with doubts. You can pray. The Spirit can assuage you, make you feel better, comfort you. That's why it's so important for us to understand the assurance of salvation. There's an entire chapter in the confession that's dedicated to the assurance of salvation. Why? So important for us to know that. So important for us to believe that. So important for us to understand that. And not be doubting when we're weak. This is a temptation that the flesh has given you. Whether or not it's Satan tempting you directly, whether it's a demon tempting you directly, or whether it's the world causing you to to, to doubt as well, to tempt you, or whether it's your own flesh. Don't succumb. Don't succumb. Go to prayer. Go to prayer. Look, you say, well, you know what, when I feel that way, I, I don't necessarily go to prayer. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? No. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But it does mean you need to train yourself. Look, do you... Okay, I'll ask a... This is a rhetorical question. You know, some of you, you know, you're pretty good about actually answering all my questions. You nod one way or the other, or your eyes go up and down, you know, like... Anyway, so you do that. So, do you think everybody in this room prays all the time? 
you think everybody in this room reads their Bible every day? No. No. They don't. Why? Life gets in their way. They don't do it. They don't prioritize it. They should. They don't. Stuff happens. They come up with excuses. Just like you. It's true. It's true. So do you think that everybody prays immediately every time they have a problem? They don't. Should we? Absolutely. The first thing that we should respond with is prayer. Now if you say, well, I don't even feel an inkling to do that. Okay. You should train yourself and pray about that. Pray about that. Pray that you will immediately go into a prayerful mode. Now this is natural for man. It's not like this is something unusual, you know, only the, uh, you know, truly dedicated Christians go into a mode of prayer all the time. Really? So let me ask you a question. How many times have you seen somebody that got in serious trouble or seriously hurt, and the first thing they said was, Oh, God. You see somebody who's seriously injured or seriously hurt? I don't know if you've ever seen that before. I have. I've seen people injured seriously enough that they died. And the first thing a lot of them say is, oh, God. They don't say, oh, some other word. They usually say that. Why? In their very soul, they know that their only appeal is to the Creator. That's the truth. Even rejecting God their entire lives, when it gets to the point of their own mortality, they know inherently, instinctively, that they have to appeal to God. Most of them too late. Too late. It's built in you. We may have trained ourselves not to do it, gotten away from doing it, not gotten used to it. You could, any, any of those words you want to use to describe, because it could be different for all of our situations, right? But the reality is, is that what we should be doing is appealing to God whenever something happens. I hurt my leg, appeal to God. I'm thinking about somebody who's in trouble, appeal to God. I see things happening around the world and I'm concerned about it, appeal to God. Right? Look, there's never an end of people that need prayer. Would you agree with me on that? I mean, discount yourself and your family. Is there ever an end to people that need prayer? There's not. People need help all the time. And what's God tell us to do? To pray. To pray. It's not going to always be answered the way we want. In fact, most of the time it's not going to be answered the way we want. But he still commands us to pray. And he also shows us in his word many times that the prayers of his people are what makes a difference. Remember 2 Chronicles 7 where he talks about if my people who are called by name, my name shall humble themselves and pray, then will I hear their prayers and heal their land. This is a bridge version. That's, not, that's the New Brian version. At any rate, but you understand, what has to happen? His people, not the people of the nation, his people, the Christians, have to humble themselves and pray. Then will he hear their prayers and heal their land. It is not because they want it to be healed. It's because they prayed. 
You see? Just one example. There are many, many more. But this idea of who's good and who's not good, which I'm circling around now, the idea of who's good and not good, who are the guilty and who are the righteous, who are the unrighteous, who are the righteous, both of those responses by God to those groups of people are reflected in his justice. The fact that he is just. Do the unrighteous deserve the favor of God? No. They're unrighteous. Of course they don't. Oh, now I'm going to ask the other, the obverse question. Are you ready? Do the righteous deserve the favor of God? They don't either. But he still gives it through his grace, through his mercy, and yet also because he is just. Rewards those that seek him. Now, here's what we think. We think, you know, I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a big house. I don't have perfect health. I don't have whatever. You fill in the blanks, and therefore God is not blessing you. Okay, where is your reward? Your reward is where it counts, in heaven, in eternity. That's your reward. The only thing that Christ promised us on earth is persecution. That's it. Nothing else. He's a rewarder of those that seek him with eternal bliss. Not earthly bliss. Obviously, we're caught up in it, right? Time for us is a, uh, an ongoing thing that we are dealing with every second of your life. It's hard for us to imagine that time is not relevant to God. It's hard for us to imagine eternity in a non-time arrangement, which, by the way, may or may not be the case. We don't know this, for instance. You're saying, what are you talking about now? <laughs> what I'm talking about is we don't know if time will exist in eternity. We don't know that. More than likely it will, because we'll be in glorified human bodies, which, by the way, are somewhat dependent on time. But how, what kind of form will it be? We don't know that for sure. There are references to things in eternity that have to do with time, but those things could be things that are to- like an anthropomorphism. Say the word tall. Anthropomorphism, thank you. I have a difficulty with that word, sorry. But just like those, it could be that those references to things happening in eternity are actually for us just to understand them, that the reality is is that there won't be any time. That could be. We don't know that. I'm not saying that's the reality. I'm saying that could be the reality. There may not be time in eternity, which seems like itself an oxymoron because eternity is a measurement of time. It's limitless time. At any rate, <laughs> let's not go too far down that rabbit trail. But, oh, so I'll, I'll mention one just so you're not. So, for instance, in the New Jerusalem, there is the tree that spans the river that flows through the middle of the city. And without going too far down that path, its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Healing indicates the passage of time, that things would be healing, the health would be improving. And also indicates, by the way, that there are nations in eternity. Interesting, interesting. Why would you need healing for the nations if there are no nations? Good question. What are the nations? Don't know. We don't know. Why? We don't need to know. Why? Because God would have told us if we needed to know. We don't need to know. At any rate, let's get off the time thing. Okay, so our reward 
is after our death. That's the bottom line. That's what our reward is. It's after we die. Now, does God bless those that serve him sometimes? Yes. Does God sometimes allow horrible things to happen to those that serve him? Yes. Look at the apostles, right? Ten died in torture. Ten. Now, if you go beyond the initial apostles, it's way more than ten. Way more. You could say 11 of the 12, with the replacement of Paul, died in torture. Most crucified. Horrible deaths. Is that because he didn't love them? (laughs) No. In fact, pretty good indicators that the apostles would be at some of the the chairs that are up front. They got there and had some of the best seats in the house at the throne. Don't know for sure. But we do know that there's some better seats. So, or there are seats. The rest may not be in seats. I don't know. (laughs) At any rate, we won't go down that path either. The point of the matter is, is that our reward is in eternity. Our reward is not here. So God's justice, we can't measure it out in our own terms. We can't somehow think this guy, drug dealer, uh, you know, drug lord, let's say, or this warlord or something, they're getting away with all this stuff, and why is God blessing them? He's not. He's allowing these things to occur. That doesn't mean he's blessing them. You see the difference? A blessing means he's doing something to cause them to actually prosper. There's a difference between allowing them to prosper. You see the difference? So, God can allow you to suffer. Or, he can bring a blessing on you. And the farther down that path you get, if you read at least the works of the apostles, particularly you can think of Paul, when you see people, apostles, suffering, they actually count it a blessing. Oh, that perspective's changed for them, hasn't it? Now they see the pain and suffering of persecution as a blessing. And by the way, we talk about persecution. Let's not be confused here. Persecution isn't that they can't shop at their favorite store anymore because they don't carry, they carry the wrong products. That's not a persecution. I'm talking about that their lives are physically being taken from them. They're physically being harmed because of their stand for Christ. That's persecution. You say, well, I'm a conservative and I can't shop at Target anymore. Good. That's not persecution. And by the way, that's you making a decision. Good one. But you're making a decision. All right? And by the way, if you want to follow that down the path, you're going to have a difficult time finding a place to shop. At least in this this city in Lapeer, I mean, you're going to have a difficult time finding a place to shop that doesn't sell that sells products that you don't agree with, morally, because all the big ones do. That's a freebie. All right, so let's move ahead. We talked about it positively and negatively, and then we actually worked through the positively. Then we worked into punishing the guilty, and so there's the positive, and then the guilty. Um, Obviously, we talked about the fact that God remains just in and through all his attributes. The Bible links justice and righteousness. We talked about that. I'm just going to move ahead a little bit here. God judges sin because he hates sin. We did talk about this. Sin is an act of treason and rebellion against the creator of the universe. We talked about the potter in the pot, right? So this is the ultimate sin. When you see somebody who actually uh, is created that actually rebels against their creator. 
if the pot was to sit up and say, I don't want to be a pot, I want to be a vase, the potter would go and make something different. Think of God when he creates us and then we thumb our nose at him. Or we tell him that we don't like the way he's running things. Or we just outright reject his existence. What will happen to those who say those things, who do those things? They'll be punished. Just like this. Except it's not coming yet. It's coming when they die. And there'll be no turning back then. It's too late. No repentance. It's too late. Look, it's super easy for us to repent when we're caught. When the when authority over us calls us to account for our actions, it's really easy to say, yeah, I did that. True? It's too late. You've been caught. You should repent. But it's already out. You didn't choose to repent yourself. That didn't happen before. You got caught. You think the unsaved are going to be able to get to the throne and they're going to be able to say, oh, this is real. Huh. Well, okay, then I believe in you. Well, they'll believe. They'll believe as soon as they're there. They're going to believe. But it'll be too late. That's what God's word tells us. Justice would demand that he would punish them because they did not do what he said in his word. They did not adhere to the gospel. They didn't. Too late. God does not have to account for his, to his, for his actions to any of his creatures. We talked about that one already. Obviously, that kind of makes sense. Why would we say that that's the case? Because this is the potter being responsible to explain to the pot why he created him or why he put a line in him or whatever. However far you want to take that metaphor. Right? That makes no sense whatsoever. God will not change his laws, his nature, or his promises, regardless of man's desire or pleas. He will judge the sinful. He must. Now, this is the point of this, right? So, if God is just, he must punish sinners. He must. By the way, if he's just, he must obey his own word. He cannot say in the scriptures, his word... I will punish the just and then change his mind. He is immutable. We use that word, immutable. What's that mean? He's unchanging. God is unchanging, which we should be so thankful for. Because what if God did change? Big what if. What if God did change so that he says, this is the way for salvation. This is the way to avoid eternal damnation. If you do this, you repent, you believe on Jesus Christ, then you will be saved, you will avoid eternal punishment, you will go to heaven. And then he changed the plan. What? That would be horrible, right? We must be thankful that the fact that he doesn't change. He doesn't change. Pagan gods change. Oh, they change. They change. And this is a danger of dispensationalism. This is a danger. Depends how far down the rabbit hole of dispensationalism you go, right? 
I'm not talking about eschatology and dispensationalism. I'm talking about their view of the dispensations in which they submit. They suggest that God has changed. God deals with his people differently through the different dispensations of time. The way he dealt with Adam was different than the way he dealt with the people of Noah, which was different than the people of Abraham and the people of Israel, which is different from us today. That's what they suggest. There is a different dispensation, and God treats people differently. That is bordering on blasphemy because it is calling into question God's unchanging nature. If God says this is the way it is, that's the way it is. If he spoke one way to one group of men through history, then that is true for all men. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. Didn't he tell the Israelites to do some stuff differently than he does us? Yes, absolutely. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the way of salvation, what's required, and what the punishment will be. That has not changed. It's not changed. What has always been required for salvation? What is, it, what's, what is the thing that's always been required for salvation? Anybody? Faith. Faith. Hebrews talks about the hall of, what we call the chapter, the hall of faith. What is it talking about? Old Testament characters who were believers because of their faith. Because of their faith. Now, there are many people from the Old Testament that we do not have enough of an indication in the Scripture to know if they are in heaven. Okay, that's just, that's just the way it is. There are many that we don't know. There are many that we assume. Like, it would be hard for us to imagine that a prophet of God would not be in heaven. Would you agree with me on that? It would be hard for us to assume Jonah, although he messed up pretty bad multiple times, would still not be in heaven. He's a prophet of God. It would be hard for us to imagine that Moses would not be in heaven, right? Was Moses prohibited from going to the promised land? Obviously he was. He's also credited with the first five books of the Bible by Christ himself. I think Moses is going to be there. He appeared with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. We already know. He was not in punishment. He's there. But that's an exception, right? Most of the other ones we're not so sure about. How about Adam? Does the Bible say Adam's in heaven? It doesn't speak it to it. It doesn't say. I would like to believe Adam is in heaven. If there's anybody that it was easy to have faith in God, it would have been Adam. He talked to him regularly. He was it. He and Eve were it on the earth for a while, right? Arguably, faith. Believed. Did he understand the promise that was given? No. Sure he didn't. How could he have known when God made the pronouncement that there was a promise, this sometime somebody would bruise Satan's head and he would bruise their heel, that that was Jesus Christ. He didn't know that. Neither did Abraham. Neither did Moses. Neither did David. Neither did a lot of the Jews who were around when Christ was there. But the promise was still given. The faith was still there. So we know that faith is what actually saves us. We know that faith is what's counted against us. We know that faith is what matters. Our works are important. Are we to do works for God? We are, because we should be doing them out of love for him. The works do not save us. The fact that Abraham took Isaac up to sacrifice him 
is not what saved him. It's that he trusted God, that God would have his hand in it, and whatever God told him to do, he should just do without any question. That showed his faith. Did Abraham show weakness? Well, if you've been around and heard Branson's preaching on that, or if you've read Genesis, you know, absolutely. Right? When he didn't reveal that he was Sarah's wife, Sarah's husband, I mean, multiple times, right? He, he didn't, she didn't show any faith in those cases, did he? So he was weak, too. He was human like you and me. Don't put him on a pedestal and think that Abraham was perfect. He wasn't perfect. That gives us hope. So, We've got to be thankful that God won't change his law. He won't change his promises. Regardless of how we act, and frankly, regardless of how man please, he still will judge the sinful. And if you've never experienced an unbeliever dying, uh, at some point you probably will. You could. I mean, it could happen. Some people never are around someone when they die. But you could be around someone who's an unbeliever that dies. But I can tell you that the stories that I know from chaplains are sometimes horrible about an unbeliever who actually knows they're dying. Some of them screaming, don't take me, at the end. What did they see? We can't know. But they thought they saw something, and it wasn't good. Never heard a story about that from a believer. Never heard that. I've heard the opposite. I've heard believers saying that they saw things before they died. What did they see? Can't know. How do you describe something like that? You can't. That's what Paul said. Can't. I can't remember what movie it was, but there was a movie where someone had died and came back, and he was asked, Oh, it was Star Trek. It was Spock. He was dead. He came back, and they said, what was it like? And he said, I don't think I can explain it without a common point of reference. And he said, do you mean I have to die for you to talk to me about what it was like to die? <laughs> How would you describe that? You can't, right? Words fail, which is why, how does the new Jerusalem actually look? Hard to say. John did his best to describe it. How is it going to be? We don't know. I'm positive that it's going to be more wonderful than you can imagine. You could probably be confident of that too. This is a creator of the universe, creating something beautiful for those that are faithful to the just. But he also created something horrible for the unjust, a lake of fire. And that's what he'll do. He'll judge them. A lot of verses. Let me read some. Nehemiah 9, 32-33, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who keepeth covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before thee that hath come upon us as on our kings, on our princes, and on our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all thy holy people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Howbeit, thou art just in all that is brought upon us. For thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. This is the cry of God's prophet Nehemiah saying, Everything that happened to us, we deserved. We did bad. We did wicked. We deserved it. Why did we get it? Because thou art just. 
Psalm 5, 5 and 6, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Hmm. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. This is when God passes before who? Exodus 34, who do you think? Moses. Notice in there, though, that will by no means clear the guilty. Right in the midst of proclaiming who he is. He's just. Nahum 1, 2, and 3. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Psalm 9, 7 and 8, And the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprighteous, uprightness. Psalm 89, 14, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. God, for God to be God, sitting on his throne, he has to be just. In his judgment, he must be. Psalm 97, 2. Clouds and darkness are around about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. You see it again. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. So, God judges, he's righteous. He's righteous in all his ways. Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Romans 9.20 Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Genesis 18.25 And be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous shall, do, shall be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? All the earth do right? Yes. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of, a living, of the living God. Why? He's just. <laughs> Revelation 11.18, the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. This is a reference to the final judgment rewarding those that fear thy name, destroying those who do not. Okay, well, we didn't finish the chapter. We're out of time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by reading the next paragraph. Now, if you haven't already done it, and it would have been a while since we've talked about it because we've been so camped out on paragraph one. So do your homework. Read paragraphs two and three. Helps to look up the scripture verses, but read paragraphs 2 and 3, look up the scriptures, or some of you might have a copy that actually has the scriptures written there too, so you can see them. I'm going to read the first paragraph right now of chapter 2, I'm sorry, paragraph 2, and we will obviously read this next time as well. 
God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures. I should probably read the one on the screen because I see I'm going to go to a second page. Uh, no. <laughs> I'll keep reading my book. Upon all creatures, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleases. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto his creator, and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. So this is, in paragraph form, the relations of God to his, create, his creatures or his creation. That's what this is. This is the relationship between God and his creation. So obviously we've talked a lot about that, but this is going to get more specific now about his relationship with us, how it works, what he owes us, or what we owe him. Everything. Right? So we're going to start on that next week. Let's close in a word of prayer.